Welcome, everyone, to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 195. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I'm doing great. We are a couple of pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, Nick. Hey, just want to mention again that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is up and now live. We're trying to update that fairly regularly. That's the Knowledge Graph and Linked Notes version of our main page's show notes, by the way. Uh, We developed that to make it easier to explore our episodes, link out to guests and topics, kind of the, the meta discussions that are going on. So, If you are checking that out and finding it useful, please uh, tweet at us and let us know that it actually is useful. Love to hear some feedback on that. Uh, Who are we talking to this week, Nick? This week, we're launching a new series of interviews with David Babbitt. And if you came from the Spiceworks community, you probably know that name pretty well. These days, he is a product manager at Amazon. That's the uh, book company? Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay, great. Books, groceries... All kinds of things. Oh, they do a lot of stuff now. Oh, interesting. That's what I hear. The things that I think that maybe people should listen to in this discussion, the very first thing, it comes pretty early, is that David had a parent who modeled a job change and retraining. I think that's just super interesting, especially if you listen throughout and kind of listen to some of the role changes, that he had a parent who did that. Well, listen for the part where you'll hear David speak to learning about software development in school and then needing to gain the expertise in the software packages he was working on at his first role. So taking, you may be a programmer, but you're still going to have to learn the technical innards of the product you work on. Yeah, yeah, that makes absolute sense. We'll also talk a little bit about startup life and how roles may be different inside a startup and you might have to wear a lot of hats. Yeah, that discussion of startup life was really interesting. It's not the first time we've talked to somebody who worked in startups, but um, it was some interesting perspectives, new perspectives. I think the one thing that I really enjoyed talking to him about was the perspective that he had on risk and fear of the startup actually being successful or you know shutting down. The other thing that he talked about during this was becoming a manager from going from a programmer, an individual contributor, to becoming a manager of a team of programmers. So that involved learning how to hire, learning how to interview. Interesting, again, perspective on changing roles and changing to that management role. We should probably just get straight to the episode rather than talking about what we liked about the episode. So without further delay, episode 195, the first part of our discussion with David Babbitt.
David Babbitt, welcome to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to meet you both. Well, Nick, I knew, but John, good to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you as well. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what, what it is that you do right now? For sure. Yeah. So uh, I currently work at Amazon. Uh, I am a principal product manager technical or a principal technical product manager. Uh, I work in the, um, the the last mile organization in the transporter experience and technology group. So like everybody's pretty aware that Amazon over the past, I don't know how many years now, you know, you've seen the planes, you've seen the trucks, like huge delivery arm of Amazon. You've heard about the drones and stuff like that, right? Uh, so my my responsibility here is when the driver or the transporter is delivering to like a locker, you may have seen a locker at like the gas station or at your apartment complex or something like that. So there are these access points, we call them, and, the, and these drivers have to go and deliver or pick up packages to lockers or countertops. And uh, and, and that's my focus, specifically the, the driver's experience when they interact with that access point. Now, this is the online bookstore? <laughs> quite a bit more than that now. Yeah, yeah, quite a bit more than that. So how did you get into not that role specifically, but maybe technology in general, you know, as far back as you want to go, like what kind of lit that fire for you? Uh, I'll go all the way back to the beginning, but let's uh, let me first say, because I'm sure Amazon wants me to say this, that all of these opinions are my own. And uh, and I've only been at Amazon for like barely 10 weeks. So it would, it would have even be like inappropriate for me to say that these are even influenced opinions by Amazon. So all opinions are my own. All right. So how did I get into this? Well, I mean, yeah, let's go back. So I think I was in third or fourth grade when my dad, uh, who was uh, he, he was an English teacher teaching English as a second language. And, and we were growing up in, in the Dallas area. And he uh, realized there's not a lot of money in teaching English, especially as a second language. So he went back to college to get a computer science degree. So as he was in college, I got really interested in uh, what he was studying, programming languages. And I was like looking at his textbooks and like learning how to write code and stuff like that. So I am, my wife calls me weird. Like I am one of the very few people that kind of knew since I was in third or fourth grade, exactly what I wanted to do for my career. And so, uh, I mean, that's kind of where it started and was writing code uh, from early on was like super nerd president of the high school computer club and and that whole thing. So that's, that's where it all started you now. Passion for, for working with computers from, from the beginning. Now, was your father the type who wanted you to follow in his footsteps or more encouraging you to do what you wanted? Cause we've had both types on the show. Uh, I would say more encouraging me to do what I wanted. I, I, I mean, in the end he became a technical writer. So he, I think he sort of like got all the hours required to like have a master's in CS, but he never actually completed the program. He went off to work at, uh, and using his English skills too, which I thought was great, you know, went off and, and wrote, you know, technical guides and installation books and stuff like that for lots of software products over you know, decades before he retired. And, but I mean, he just encouraged my passion. And so, uh, yeah, I was building computers, you know, like, you know, slapping together PC parts, right. And writing code and stuff like that from very early on. You didn't go into tech marketing, though. No, I wanted to write code. I, I like the, the, yeah, I mean, we can get into that, but like, I like the, the problem solving of it. Like, I think I always used to mm -hmm. describe it as like, sort of like doing little puzzles every day, all day long. I thought it was kind of fun. Yeah, definitely. What was that first language that you learned to love? Well, I wouldn't say I learned to love it, but Pascal was the first language I wrote in. That was what my dad was learning at the time. Like, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen it in industry. In high school, it was C. When I went to college, it was C and then Java. And then after college, when I was working in industry, it was C at IBM. Uh, it was Java and Motive. It was Java and C Sharp at Sergian. It was back to C again at Door Speed. It was Ruby at Spiceworks where I, where I met Nick. Ah, uh, yes. Ruby on Rails. Yeah. Was the software development career 
what you thought it would be after really enjoying coding so much as a as a young man? That's a really good question. I I think for the most part, yes. I think so. I went I went to college at a really good university. I went to Carnegie Mellon, and it's like top five for CS programs. And so you know you're there with a lot of extremely bright people. And so I think that's where it, I probably realized that I wasn't the best engineer. <laughs> um, and uh, and so probably knew that going back to your question about like is this the the career path that I kind of picked for myself? I mean, I knew that I probably wasn't going to be the longest like tenured engineer, the best engineer in any organization. Uh, And so I probably was seeking like what was going to be the opportunity to move out of engineering at some point in time. Like maybe that was in the back of my mind. I feel like also at the same time, it sort of happened to me. So, uh, so I don't know. I I think that generally it is what I wanted. It's interesting. Like the premise of that question, just because I think when people first learn programming languages, they're learning how to program that's different from the actual job of programming for a living. There's, you, get, you can get pretty far into it before you start to think about algorithmic thinking and data structures, you know, as like more of a formal thing that you have to pay attention to. It might sneak up on you organically, but it, it can be a little while. I guess, I mean, I agree with that, but at the same time, like maybe it was my education like definitely like that i would say for sure that was my experience of like being a high school or learning how to program it wasn't anything about data structures you're just like trying to make the program work or whatever you're solving a riddle for cs class but um i think you know when i evaluated different cs programs when i was going off to school like what you see is that a lot of them are just like one or two language classes and everything else is like math and algorithms and data structures and a whole lot of just problem solving type classes I think at CMU at the time, like it was nine CS classes and seven math classes or something like that when I first started. So in like one of those was C. I'm pretty sure it was just one language class. Yeah, I I think my freshman year, first semester programming class, the professor lectured completely in pseudocode and all of our labs were in C and our textbook was K&R. Right. Yeah. Which is, I would say, not the way to go about it. Man, I love KNR. That's it's showing our age though, I think. KNR. Can somebody just D an acronym that? I don't even know the proper names. What is it? Kernahan and Richie or something like that? Yeah, I think that's how you yeah. pronounce it. Uh like the C textbook. The other okay. one was the Gang of Four, and that was the what was Gang of Four was for patterns of design or something? Design patterns. Textbooks and reference manuals are two different things, right? Yeah. And KNR was probably a pretty good reference manual, but a pretty crappy textbook in my experience. This is really the exact point of this podcast. Yeah. Really dive into like <laughs> let's get into some deep nerd stuff. Yeah. CS, like let's let's design a new one, guys. I wanna know, are software engineer and software developer the same or different things just on the surface? Like when we say those terms, are those pretty much the same? No, I I mean, I I remember somebody talking about this early on in my career of like, and it's probably because my first job out of school was at IBM. And so you were working with other people that had proper engineering degrees. And because like the IBM facility in Austin used to have a lot of manufacturing. And so you did kind of cross paths with some of those people. And I think that maybe they were like, they were the type that were maybe a, a little bit insulted that like software developers were calling themselves software, software engineers. And, uh, you know, we didn't have that sort of like rigor or, or whatever. And 
I don't know. Like I've always put like, if you look at my LinkedIn, you look at my resume, I just put whatever title I had at that company on my resume. To me, a friend always used to say, like, if your title doesn't start with C, then it doesn't matter. I've really sort of taken that to heart. Like, it's just whatever they called me. Like, it's gone up and down the ladder. It's different titles, different jobs. They mean different things. To me, it doesn't matter that much. It's, again, just a repeating conversation. I think we had this with Neil when we recorded is there's this kind of, I don't want to say legacy, but I'll just say historical engineering roles where they actually have a professional exam to become a certified professional engineer. Oh, yeah. Right. So if you have a new school role that has engineer in the title, but there is no certified professional exam for it, then the people who have sweated for that certification would be insulted. And I think I that's where the, uh, oh, is the custodian going to start calling his or herself an engineer also? like Well, I never heard it taken that far, but uh, <laughs> but I, I do remember those early days of like, you know, the electrical engineers, the chemical engineers, the mechanical engineers, they were always like, you know, software developers calling themselves software engineers. And to your point, like they didn't pass any tests or something like that. I, I did an internship right after high school. Maybe this is where I got it too. I did an internship right after high school in the North, North Texas area at the Superconducting Super Collider it was the big underground loop that they were creating to smash atoms together. And so there was a lot of uh, mechanical engineers that worked there. And I remember that they would look at these CAD designs and, and I was there writing code and it was like very different dynamic from between us. So there's no real distinction within the industry. I've not experienced one, so no, I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. What about the leveling as a software engineer? I've, I've noticed there seem to be some equivalencies between the big tech companies where they'll say, here's what the different levels and titles mean at this company and the equivalent levels and titles at this other company are X. And here's kind of the overlap because it's not 100%. I don't know if I have a lot of knowledge on that stuff. So I worked at, I want to say five startups before I came to Amazon. And I think there they don't have, we didn't have all these different levels. It was sort of like developer senior developer maybe we had a principal dev or a lead or something like that in pm now i'm obviously a product manager now so in product management it was technical product manager product manager without the technical it was senior maybe we had a principal maybe but like i don't i don't remember it being like so well regimented you know when i came to amazon a couple of months ago and you know, through the interview process you sort of learn that they've got all these different levels. And I think to your point, like the, I've seen articles published that talk about, you know, SD3 versus SD2. Like I'm an L7 and, you know, I like, you know, there's L6s, there's L8s, there's L10s, there's all kinds of stuff. And so like, I don't, I don't know a whole lot about it. And I don't know like what the differences are amongst companies, but I know that there's stuff out on the internet that compare them and, and, uh, and talk about the responsibilities at different points of those bands. So how did you get that very first job? You said IBM, but maybe that wasn't the first one. Oh, that was the first one. Yeah. So I'm career fair at, at CMU. A lot of my interests, so I, you know, I grew up in Dallas and uh, a lot of my, and I went to school in Pennsylvania. So a lot of my interest was to come back to Texas. And so uh, at the career fair, you know, interviewed with lots of different companies and I came down to Austin for two different companies and ended up landing at, at IBM. So I worked in the group on AIX, which like the Unix before Linux at IBM. And uh, I worked in the TCP/IP group, and there was two, there was two halves of our group. So with the groups that the the engineers that were working on the kernel level stuff, and then the engineers that were working on the applications and the servers, and so the services. So I worked on the DHCP server and the DNS server for AIX for three years. Is that what's now called the Power Platform? 
guess is better than mine. I, I don't know. I'm just trying to think back like the RS6000s. Yep. Had an RS6000 in my house. Okay. So anything with a, a power processor? Definitely, yeah. Okay. So is this one of those things, David, where, okay, you're a programmer, you you know the code part, but you have to learn the networking and technology stack part as you come into it? Or did you already have a good foundation in those kinds of things coming into this role? Like, did you have to ramp on DHCP and stuff? Oh, I mean, I definitely had to ramp on that. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't say that I had a good understanding of, I definitely didn't have much of an understanding at all about DHCP or DNS, the protocols themselves. I had a little bit of an understanding of network programming, like sockets programming, if you're familiar with the terminology, just because I did in my senior year, I think I took a networking class. And I remember doing, we're probably writing chat servers and clients or something like that was probably the project. And so I, I remember that. So I had a little bit of experience with doing some socket programming. But yeah, you have to come up to speed on whatever domain you're in. I think in every role, you're coming up to speed on whatever domain you're in. And I, the reason I ask that question is, for someone who is new to software development, should they expect to be able to ramp on the product that they're going to be developing for as long as they understand software design principles, coding, troubleshooting, CICD pipelines, that kind of stuff. Just for someone looking to break into the industry is more where my question is coming from. 100%. So what you take from role to or from job to job, let's just say, like what you take is, you know, being able to solve a problem, being able to dig, being able to research, uh, all those things, you, know, that you use them across every single job that you're going to have as, as a developer. Let's start there. You don't know the domain that you're stepping into necessarily. And so what, you know, what is the business problem that you're solving? Who is the market that you're solving problems for? You know, what are their problems and things like that? I, I think it's actually one of my favorite parts about being an engineer is like uh, being a developer, <laughs> not to go back to that conversation, but as a developer working at these different companies over the years, you, you sort of like learn how things work from the inside out. I always thought that was really fun. And so like I didn't, like you said, going back to the question about IBM, like I didn't know anything about DNS before I got there. I would say that I was quite the DNS expert, <laughs> not to blow my own arm right here, but I like quite the DNS expert by the time I left. Later on, you're working in different roles, you learn about different technologies. I had a friend that worked in foreign exchange trading at UBS. Like you learn about like how this industry works from the inside out. I think it's really interesting stuff that you get exposed to as a developer. And when that happens, do you feel the freedom to move around even within an organization to work on different types of problems or once you start walking down that path maybe even within an organization does that mean that's the path that you're on you're never necessarily leaving like the network programming team there's no hey can i transfer over to the database you know one of the database teams i'm sure ibm had five or more right or is that something you actually have to leave the organization for or is that organizationally dependent I think that that's probably organizationally dependent. Like, so one thing that I've seen at, at Amazon so far is that there does seem to be a lot of mobility around the company. So you see people kind of taking on new roles and moving around and stuff like that. I'm trying to think back to previous companies, like I worked at lots of startups, right? And so at lots of startups, you're basically working on one product, right? Or maybe one of a few products. And so you're not really changing between products all that often. You don't have the opportunity necessarily to do that. What I do see though, is like you, in, especially as, for developers, I do see that there are like front-end developers, back-end developers, full-stack developers, some people will call themselves, but you you do get a little bit maybe pigeonholed in some part of the skill set, but I wouldn't necessarily say like 
your experience as databases and therefore you're only ever going to work on databases. Your, your experience might be network programming and it might be hard to escape that at some point in time. Your experience might be just writing back end code, server code and services code. And you're, you're probably not going to transition to being a front end developer very easily that or a mobile developer or something like that. Can someone leverage their domain knowledge to break into software development if they don't have a software developer background? For example, if someone had come to IBM the same time as you and they were super expert in DHCP and DNS, but they were just kind of a beginner in the coding and wanted to break into that space, is that enough to get someone to give you a shot? Yeah, I, I don't think like it would be fair to say that IBM would have taken that shot, you know, but... Because we're like C development and C development has it's like it's it's probably one of the harder ones to start off doing. Right. Mm -hmm. I would say, though, that nowadays, I think there's a lot more opportunity to maybe do the same thing that you're talking about. So I've seen I know some people that are analysts like uh, data analysts. And, you know, maybe 10 years ago they were working in Excel or working with R or something like that. And now they're writing Python. My my own brother, he is an Active Directory admin, but in the past several years, he's become you know more into DevOps, so Puppet and Chef and PowerShell. He he like one of the co-hosts of our our local PowerShell user group. Uh, so I think that you see this sort of like domain ex expertise like turning into like programming skills. And now, especially honestly with DevOps, it might be the biggest opportunity where you just have a lot of people that were just technologists and learned a little bit of scripting and, and become more domain expertise uh, and some scripting expertise. And you know, now there's like a lot of opportunity to do that. There's probably other examples besides those two, but I think that those friends that I know are, are very much, they cracked into kind of being devs that way. There's that, the scripting word, right? Which is something that operations people use to describe what they do. So they're very clear that they're not programmers. Oh, no, I just script. Or maybe even programmers use that to say, oh, you just script, you don't write programs. Maybe because of a lack of rigor or formal training or, or some you know perceived divide. But the more complex infrastructure's code is or you know even just the whole DevOps world gets, that kind of falls away. Like everybody starts to need to have that similar type of rigor. I agree with that. And I, I don't I don't mean it in some weird pejorative way or anything like that. I think that, I mean, I dabbled in DevOps a couple of jobs ago, and that's not easy. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, there's, yeah, it has its own set of like challenges and rigor and problem solving and everything like it. So I don't, you know, just because maybe we don't think of it as a program and it does seem more of it's structured like a script or whatever. To me, that's not, you know, sort of a reflection on how valued it is or anything like that. I didn't mean to be accusatory about that. No worries. It was just the uh, the observation that I had because I definitely said that when I was in operations. It's like, hey, this is here's the script that I wrote in Perl. Like, oh, how complicated? Oh, it's you know, it's three thousand lines. Uh, <laughs> it's three thousand it, lines of Perl. <laughs> it's just a script, though. Yeah. You know, it's uh, extremely well structured and documented, but it's just a script. I mean, Perl scripts can really turn into programs of their own, so. They start off as a script. Let's say that. Yeah. I mean, PowerShell oh, so yeah. originated as a scripting language, right? Just pure operation stuff and has grown and grown and grown. Yeah. But that that's the industry, I think. And that is the skill people will hire. Oh, for sure. PowerShell scripting. Salaries are outrageous in DevOps now, right? Well, it's an important, important job yeah, area. It is. For, for most industries. Yeah. It's also part of the title inflation. I think that was kind of one of the surprises of like technology jobs that, that really sort of sprung up over the past five years that came out of nowhere and all of a sudden they're like top earners. I think some of it is title inflation, you know, because nobody hires sysadmins anymore. 
Like that's not a title that you hire for, for the most part. That's definitely how most of the people in that industry got their start in the, in the operations side anyway. Yeah, perhaps not my area of expertise, so I can't really comment. I was about to ask about that transition from IBM. How did that go? You know, what was the reason that you left like the, the transition out of it? That's a really good question. So for, for me, it was, and I don't want to make it sound like there's anything disparaging about IBM here. I think that it's probably, you can say the same thing for like a lot of just large companies, right? And uh, so what I felt like we had, or maybe it's just large products, like I felt like we had, I don't even know the numbers anymore, but it was like 100, 300, I don't know how many developers were contributing to AIX, right? And you felt like there was, it was so easy to like sort of hide uh, you know, kind of in the mix and also maybe the importance of the things that your features that you're working on, you know, in, in the bigger scheme of things. And obviously, like since then, moving on to being a leader and being a PM and stuff like that, you know, you are more focused on like what's important for this product in the market and outcomes to create. As a, as a junior engineer working on this is the one feature I'm working on. It's the most important thing in my life right now, basically. Like, in, but then if this doesn't make the release or it got cut or whatever, like, it just felt like, you know, it's like you're just in this sea of engineers working on this gigantic product and your future just didn't matter. That's what I remember feeling at the time when I left. And so I wanted to go to startups. And I think I left like late 99. I wouldn't say that I was like leaving because of like the dot com bubble or, you know, paper millionaires or anything like that. I was I was really just like looking to get out there and work in startups where I thought maybe I could, you know, have a bigger responsibility, make a bigger difference, have a bigger impact to the to the product. We talked to several people who have worked at startups with with different things to say about the pros and cons. What's some of the advice that you would give someone before considering working for a startup? One thing that's in common, we'll back up from this, like, but one thing that's in common across like all startup job postings that I think you'll probably see is ability to deal with uncertainty or something like that. It's almost, it's like a really common phrase that you see on these job postings, right? Just think about like, what is the definition of startup for a second? Like, I don't know that. I've even looked it up, but I remember one of my leaders at one of these companies talking about it as it's basically like an unproven product, an unproven market segment, you know, an unproven business model. One of these things is essentially unproven, right? So when you're, you know, when you're trying to make something that is unproven succeed, you're going to be met with lots of uncertainty. I mean, if it was a certain deal, like imagine going to get like a small business loan to go and open up like another franchise of, you know, whatever, Circle K. Like these are like known business problems and like a known model for being successful at it or whatever. So I would say like uncertainty comes from that. You're, you're going to be faced with, you know, potentially like lots of changes in what you thought was the right direction for the product, for your responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you just have to be able to sort of roll with those punches. I think that's a big part of it. Somewhat related to that, I guess, is like understand that you're going to wear lots of hats like it's a little bit different than saying like uncertainty but like there's like there's not necessarily like a box around your role like you're going to have to have step outside what might you might think is a typical role and have to contribute to other areas learn something new something along those lines i think it's a, another big thing that that we experience at startups um some just to be aware of that that's that's going to happen uh certainly you know when they're when they're smaller let's see i think a third one and this one is maybe a little controversial is sort of like, I do think that you're going to end up probably having to work a little harder. And I don't think of that as like, you know, the, like I said, like the nineties dot com days or something like that, where people were like working hundred hour weeks thinking that their stock options were going to pay off or something like that. I think of it more like almost more like a, the sum of the previous two points, like 
you know, you're, you're going to have to probably step outside your role at some point in time because the company didn't anticipate something because this is a little bit uncertain, right? And just be willing to accept that every now and then you're going to probably have to roll up your sleeves and work a little bit harder on something. I, you know, I'll say like sort of full disclosure, I am pretty much a workaholic. And so, you know, I will, I, I work way too much and I don't think that it's right like that a company should take advantage of that. So if a company is like, if you're frequently rolling up your sleeves and doing other people's jobs and working way extra hours and stuff like that, I do think that at some point, you know, it is basically like mismanagement and poor planning and that's not right. But, you know, occasionally you know, who else is there to, to pick up the pieces to solve the problem? You know, if they didn't hire somebody like to, to do that, then okay, you're going to do it this time. And I think you have to kind of, kind of be willing to do that. Uh, so I, I think those are sort of like the bigger challenges that I think about with startups there's obviously lots of upside, I think, working at startups, like some that come to mind. I mean, going back to my point about IBM or like leaving a large company, like you're going to feel like you move the needle all the time. Like you, you know, people are depending on you to get your task done, to get your piece of the product done. I think that's a, I think it's a real big part of it. And, and, you know, hopefully fulfilling, right, for you, right? That you get, you have that much responsibility and people are depending on you. I guess related to the previous two points as well, or previous points, like you're going to learn a lot, like you're going to be exposed to other stuff. You know, so I was, I worked maybe what, 12, 10, 12 years before I went to Spiceworks. And, uh, and I was just an engineer in different products. And I was a lead, you know, working on different products at different companies and stuff like that. And maybe in the second year at Spiceworks, you know, my boss came to me and was like, time for you to be a manager, basically. <laughs> and or are you interested in being a manager is how he really approached me. And, and, you know, and then I think in the next three, four or five years or something like that, I really got exposed to stuff that I don't, you know, I didn't see any part of in the past 12 years. So, you know, how does budgeting work? How does hiring work? Uh, how do business partnerships work? Like there's all kinds of conversations that I would have never been exposed to working at a larger company. So I think that there's a lot to that. So I think those are the, the, the rewarding things. A lot of people are like always talk about like sort of the risk of working at a startup and isn't going to shut down or is it going to like fail? I never really felt that. I mean, I did work at a company that that ran its course, basically. I was I left before it it did close down. But I always thought like everybody at a startup is sort of invested in the success of that startup, invested in that 1.0 product, if you will, you know, depending on where the, the startup life cycle is. And I always felt like if you were working at the satellite office of, a, of a, an IBM or, or some giant company, Cisco, whatever, like you always heard these horror stories of like that office getting closed down because like these decisions were made, you know, 12 levels above anybody in that office that, you know, that this was no longer profitable, you know, we're going to cut this whole product line and et cetera. And so they just like ended up axing a whole, a whole office and had really nothing to do with the people there. It shouldn't be like something that somebody takes personally or whatever, but uh, I always felt like more job safety, if you will, in working at a startup than I think maybe I felt uh, working at, you know, at the satellite office, if you will, at a, at, a, at a big company. I think there's a lot of perception there, right? Because it doesn't even have to be a satellite office. It could be a product team. Fair. So everybody from the VP down, wherever they happen to be working, gets let go. Or yeah. you have 90 days to find another role or how yeah, totally. that looks at that organization. And I think that more recently, more people have been exposed to that, you know, in the last five to 10 years, people have realized, oh, working at a large company doesn't mean that I have job security. Like there's large companies that yeah. fire people all the time. Yeah. And that's just how it it's business. Work. I mean, yeah. So nobody has a lifetime commitment to you. You know that those days yeah. are over, right? Oh yeah, for sure. So I think maybe the idea of frailty or risk in a startup has to do with the percentage of 
income that one is making from stock options. So really, if that is not an issue, then it's not an issue. I think those days have moved on to well i mean if you compare like let's say a startup salary to an amazon salary yes they're vastly different but if you compare like uh taking out the the fang companies basically compare like your average tech company to the average startup these salaries are not so dramatically different to where like the 90s era of like taking a pay cut and working for options uh i, I don't think that stuff exists anymore maybe i might be wrong i mean i, I haven't been to startups for for a little while but i i don't think that those days exist so i i do think though that there is a when we talk about like sort of like frailty, I do think that if you if you focused on like sort of your success, your your personal success, your personal salary, your family safeness or you know security or whatever, like I think you get that in a startup. Maybe the overall company has a ninety nine and a half percent chance of failing, but you know you're you're probably going to be okay for some period of time. Like I I don't think that 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 necessarily changes on a personal level. Whether you're back to the previous point, whether you're working at a startup versus working at a large company, right? I think. It took a cycle of people to realize that they'd been working at a reduced salary for paper, you know, for sure. imaginary paper oh, yeah. to go, oh, yeah, that that's something that can't happen again. And then it also takes a cycle of people going, oh, I worked for this company. It went under, but I was fine because yeah. there's so much demand for my role that it was really easy to find another really interesting role with that skill set that I had acquired you know over time and i was fine and the more you feel that that's fine yeah maybe going back to the what do you get out of startups what should you you know be eyes wide open going into startups like i think fear fear of failure is something to get over like just be sort of accept the possibility that this isn't going to fail and what can you learn from it you know if there's anything that to, to be learned from it and uh, and embrace it to a degree. Maybe I've been super successful in in, in terms of uh, privilege, I should say, rather than successful. I, I definitely I have been privileged, and and you know I've lost my job in the past, or I've quit my jobs and moved on to other jobs, and I've never I've never lost a job for any length of time to where I feel threatened that that you know if I lose my job, then all of a sudden it's like my family's livelihood or something like that. I, I've been super privileged in that regard. That's a good point. I think I never thought about it that way, but you have to time like when you're startup goes under to the business cycle. If you're going to be at a startup that fails, you want it to fail while there's a lot of other jobs available. <laughs> so just Fair. just keep that timing in mind, right? Fair. <laughs> don't don't you don't want it to fail like right in the at the beginning of a recession. Yes, that is probably fair. But it's something to something to take into account when you're assessing risk at at a role. How do other companies look at the startups on the resume if if they were to fail? If you're applying for a job at a different company that's a non-startup, but you were at one that failed, how is that looked upon differently than if it was a bit more successful? Any feedback there? I can't say firsthand. Um, I don't know that I remember being asked about like any lessons that I learned from some of these less successful startups. I, I will say when when I've interviewed people in the past, um, when and I saw on their resume that they had tried something of their own. And uh, like, so they, they tried some little side business or, or even they, they quit their main job and they tried to do something on their own, bootstrapping, whatever. A lot, obviously they're interviewing with you, so they probably weren't successful. So I, I really enjoyed those conversations because it was an opportunity to like learn about you know, what they learned from that experience. And so it wasn't so much the, the failure itself. I think it's really like what you took away from it. I suppose if you're being interviewed to join a founding team, then maybe there's a little bit more scrutiny about the past experiences at other startups that you had. 
mostly about, you know, maybe what lessons you learned to make sure that this one doesn't fail. Yeah, I mean, I can't can't speak to that firsthand. Never tried. Fair enough. But you can speak firsthand to putting on that extra hat at the startup and becoming a manager when perhaps you didn't consider that. For sure. Tell us a little bit about that transition and that added responsibility. Yeah, so this was back in 2000, let's call it nine, probably. I was working at a startup called uh, Spiceworks and... Um, at the time we were probably 30, 50, 60 people, something like that. And very engineering heavy. And my, I reported to a founder and uh, VP of engineering. And I think basically everybody did, right? So it was like 20 of us or something at the time reporting to him. And that was too much. And so I think he came to, uh, myself and, and, and my friend Kevin and, and basically like approached us and say, listen, like this is beyond what I can manage myself. You know, are you interested in managing people? And you know, I'm always up for kind of a challenge. And uh, I wasn't thinking to your point, Nick, like I wasn't thinking that this was part of my career path necessarily. But I'm always up for a challenge. I think I've sort of like learned in in retrospect, I'm also kind of, um, how do I describe this, Uh, a little bit sort of a team player to a fault. And it's like, if the company needs it, and you know, okay, I'll, I'll try it. And, you know, maybe, like I said, to a fault, maybe it ends up being not the thing that I wanted to do. But in this case, I really did enjoy managing people. I thought managing, it's just another sort of like programming is a little bit of puzzles every day, like managing people is its own little challenge. And I think that it's, you know, I'm a people person too. So I do enjoy it. And so that's, that's when I first kind of transitioned into being management. And being management at Spiceworks was a lot player coach. Like we got to still, you know, the, the managers there were still writing code. We were still sort of like, we didn't have PMs at the time. So we were kind of leading the product as well as leading the engineering effort. And so it was, it was a fun transition. That's interesting. It was more about the investment in the startup and what you could do to make the startup successful than a thought through career move, if I heard you correctly. that I think that's a spot on way of looking at it i and i you know, I could probably say the same for the rest of my entire career like i don't think that i've i've not been very calculated in in how i got to where i was i just like continue doing the things that i enjoy doing and it's taken me to where i am i think if you continue to get success out of that then that's a, a pretty good way to go about it if it if it's leading you to success I mean, I've certainly enjoyed it. I, obviously, I've had my baubles in terms of like what roles I've had or, or responsibilities I've had that I didn't enjoy. But I think by and large, that, you know, looking over my entire career, I've really enjoyed every single responsibility I had in every job. You mentioned at IBM, one of the things that you were running away from, it, it kind of fit the pattern of, what was that book, Nick? Is the Three Signs of a Miserable Job by Patrick Lencioni? That's the one. It's Anonymity, Irrelevance, and Immeasurement. And maybe it was the first two, the anonymity and the irrelevance. Yeah, 100%. Or not understanding what the relevance was. So it sounds like that's something that you learned, like you were running towards being known in the organization, which is why maybe startups appealed to you because you wanted to, at the same time, understand like how your effort was directly affecting the success of the company. And when you have smaller, flat organizations, you can see that directly. You don't have to stretch your imagination to understand that. And then again, smaller, flatter companies, it's much more difficult to be anonymous. Agreed. And I, I think another, just one more comment on that, like 
I remember somebody asking me one time, like saying that like sort of their stake in the company wasn't as big as my stake in the company, almost like implying that my motivation or my work ethic or something like that was somehow related like to like how much I, I stood to gain from like the success of the company. And I couldn't disagree more. Again, it kind of goes back to like, I'm not very calculated about my own career path or anything like that. To your point, it was all about just, you know, are we being successful and doing right for our customers and our users? Am I making an impact on this product? Are people enjoying it? And like, that's what motivated me more than anything else. Probably that's what led to being, being a PM more than anything else too, but we can, we can get to that. I like that. You're continuing to make an impact while getting experience doing something different. So your job satisfaction doesn't change because you feel like you still have a purpose. Yes. Very insightful. Yeah, it wasn't really a question. Sorry, that was like John White-esque. <laughs> Just an observation. <laughs> but you mentioned interviewing people earlier about their experience and trying new things. I imagine that interviewing people was a little bit of a learned skill, right? Because that's not just something that people know how to do necessarily, know how to spot talent if they haven't done it. Yeah, definitely. I was super uncomfortable the first few interviews. I remember also like you're interviewing people that are more tenured than you're than you are in industry and you go in there really intimidated, you know, somebody with 25 years on their resume and you're just like, who am I? I'm some kid that's interviewing this person. You feel like really out of place. It took lots of practice. I think there's a couple of ways to approach it. Like I I asked the, typically the same sets of questions. And so that would allow you to always see like kind of comparing this candidate to the previous candidate to the next candidate sort of thing. Like you start to see like how different people answer the questions differently and who were better at it versus others. So everybody kind of had the questions. Like you knew what my, my question was, you knew what Francis's question was, stuff like that. That's kind of a running joke inside the company. And I think the other thing is like you, you can do, um, I think early on, especially like sit in other interviews and see how other people ask questions and how they take the conversation where they go with it. So I think that was, those are a couple of ways that, that I sort of like learned to develop it over time. It's fascinating. I never thought about this until you just said it, but I definitely ask very similar questions in my interviewing at Google Cloud. Although I have to say, we are not allowed to index to past people that we've interviewed. We have to index versus like a rubric. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes like it's difficult. Like I don't do it often enough, like maybe, you know, once a month. So I don't necessarily remember how other people answered questions, but I it is easy for me to look up a rubric and go, oh, yeah, this is kind of what we're looking for or this is what success looks like, you know, or an output in an interview that that we'd like. Yeah, I think like that's a really good point. Like I would say like you know, at, at startups, I don't think that we were ever that like I don't know if formal is the right word for it, but we were certainly not that methodical or scientific in our process and so we were interviewing all the time right two three interviews a week for some people you know more than that for others uh and so it was it wasn't like you were actually ranking these people on a piece of paper or something anything like that it was just like you just did so many interviews that it was pretty easy to sort of like spot the really good ones spot the the ones that were not good and then i do think that there's like a whole way to look at everybody in between which i don't think like typical engineering interviews are good for this whole like category in between like the, the, the rock stars and, and the ones that are obviously struggling. And we tried different things at, at Spiceworks. Um, I pushed for many different like approaches to like, how, how can we do better for this middle group of people? And so we tried one time bringing people in for like a half a day or something like that and like letting them work with you for a half a day and see what what types of questions do they ask? How much progress do they make? How much of a digger are they? All these sorts of things. Like, I think you learn a lot from that that you're not going to learn on like a whiteboard. 
I think also like going back to like practicing your questions or developing your questions over time, you learn to like, I think maybe as a, as a really naive interviewer, you start off like asking really like trivia-esque questions. Like I, I can't even come up with an example, but almost like obscure Java questions. I think there's even a book on like Java programming questions, right? Like the typical tripping, uh, stumbling block either for, for Java programmers. For me, it was like, it was never about, I mean, well, maybe one of my first couple of interviews, that's how it was. But like later on, you just sort of learn to like, give them a really hard problem and see how they take it. And it wasn't about the programming language. I, I got to the point where I was just letting them pseudocode. It wasn't about the programming language at all. Oh, so they got to lecture in pseudocode just like John's college professor that he mentioned. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yes, they were teaching me. I think it's really neat these different ways you can interview people. Because, John, you know, you're not a hiring manager at Google Cloud, but you're interviewing people and weighing in on the candidate. And David, I imagine that you were probably weighing in more or at least closer to a hiring manager than maybe a peer on the team might do an interview. And the questions and type of interview are a little bit different. Does that sound about right? Probably that would have been the right way to handle it. I, I think that I probably interviewed on, oh, no, okay, now I'm trying to remember some of my interview questions. Definitely, I did your typical engineering, like give you a problem, let you struggle, th those sorts of things, write a loop, <laughs> the, the, the basic stuff. Like I remember doing that stuff for a long time. Other questions that I would ask were more around culture. I was like really curious to see like how you know, how people like had responded to previous situations in in, the, in their uh, form, in their previous jobs. And so give me an example of a time when this and that and the other thing. So I think that's, you know, pretty common interview technique that that probably you know, like it, certainly at startups. I feel like that's more like a management style of question than necessarily like what a, a peer would ask a, a, another engineer. But like what I've witnessed at like Amazon, I'm sure John is the same at like Google. Like you're asking lots of cultural questions and tell me about a time when types of questions. Those are typical Amazon. Uh, well, I think questions in general. Yeah, that makes sense. I also think, you know, to your point about being methodical that you only have a real methodical method to doing interviewing and tracking performance to what the output of those interviews was when you are large and you have an entire department of people who are just doing that. Exactly. Yeah, totally. So they say, oh, if we put a thousand hours into this and improve our hiring by, by 0.5%, it's going to save us you know, $10 million a quarter or something like that, then, yeah. then they do that. But if you're in a startup, you probably don't have that at all. Nobody has the resources to do that. This actually goes back to like, what are you going to learn at a startup? Like you're, you're making this up as you go along. Things like this, like we didn't do interviews like before. I didn't do a single interview before. Well, a couple of technical interviews, probably in a couple of the jobs before, but to the scale that I was doing at, at Spiceworks, I didn't do that many interviews. And so you're like kind of developing your craft there when you're doing two, three interviews a week. And to your point, John, like there, there was never like there was we did not have that kind of science behind it. Well, I think it's kind of points to another thing. I think you touched on it is the resource constraints. Yeah. When you're at a startup and that shows up in different ways, right? Is there a C-level HR exec who reports directly to the board at times? Like, usually in a startup, no, right? Or that hat might be worn by somebody who has two other C-level responsibilities. I, I think it's also like a question of scale, right? Your, your point about like the savings or, or you know the gains by actually investing is. I think across the board, like when you're dealing at like Amazon, Google, Facebook scale, whatever, 
like you recognize that uh, a tenth of a percent improvement in one area or another is going to be millions of dollars. So, of course, you can throw engineers at it. You can throw business analysts at it, data science analysts or whatever at it to solve this problem because it's kind of it's all upside to a degree. And like at startups, to your point, like you can never do that stuff. It's like you're going to hire three more people in order to to solve a hiring problem for a company that's going from 30 people to 500 over the course of five years. I don't I don't know that you're necessarily going to see like the return on that. I don't know. It's an interesting question. Certainly, it's certainly hard to justify those early days of like, are we going to hire a whole team to really understand the math behind hiring well? Pretty unlikely success. I don't, I don't know. Maybe somebody can prove me wrong on that, but it seems like a pretty high, uh, un- unlikely, unlikely story there uh, for startups. I think it's pretty unlikely that that would be invested in. But at the same time, we talk to so many managers and they they keep on saying hiring the wrong person can be disastrous. Over and over again, you make two or three bad hires and that can really haunt you for years. Totally agree. And I go back to like, I think typical interviews can find the rock stars. Typical interviews can weed out people that aren't going to cut it. But I think there's a huge gray area in between that needs better service. And maybe companies that felt the pressure to hire, you know, accepted those people that were in this huge gray area in between and they got some losses in doing that. You know, other companies maybe put a little bit more effort into it to figure out rather than just say no and move on to the next rock star. Let's figure out a way where we can weed out in this gray area. Who are the who are the, the ones that are going to be great employees and who aren't? Who's trainable? Who already has the skill set? That kind of thing. Yeah. Who knows how to say the right things, but when they come in, they're not that useful. Totally. It's a really interesting space. And I'm sure that we are not innovative to point it out. I'm sure that there have been 12 to 20 different startups to address just this one thing Mm -hmm. for other startups. Right. Totally. Or HR services firms. Yes. I'll definitely go on the record to say like, it's been a long time since I've done like tons and tons of interviewing. I'm by no means, I can even barely remember the interviews that I was doing at the time. So not my area of expertise by a long shot these days. Nick, I really enjoyed this discussion with David, and the thing that I'm kicking myself over is not asking him about whether his father's job change and retraining had an effect on him and how he viewed the risks of changing roles and changing careers. I just don't know what went through my mind about not asking that question? Well, this is why we should just spend four hours with each guest and you'd think we could hash out these questions. <laughs> we'll have him back and maybe ask him that question. It's a good follow-up. How about that process he had to develop for interviewing? He pointed out that interviewing is a learned skill. It's not something you just know how to do. I don't even know that we've mastered it, right? Being on this podcast. Very true. But interviewing people to hire is a little bit different. And I liked what David said about needing to service the candidate market that falls somewhere between the rock stars and the 
I guess, bottom of the barrel or just not very strong candidates. It reminded me of what Jeff Eberhard said about high flyers, solid players, and all the rest. It's almost like David is talking about those solid players that make for quite good employees. They may not be the high flyers, but they're still going to be really good employees that could be put to good use. Yeah, absolutely. The ability to find those people and figure out who is in that category and who is just interviewing well. I also liked, I think, from that discussion, his point about the volume of interviews that he had to do and how that helped him get up to speed. That makes sense to me. If you're just doing a lot of interviews over time, you start to see what's working and what isn't working. Just like any skill, you need to practice it in order to do well and figure out if you are doing well. Yeah, you need the at-bats. If you if you don't have those, then it's not like you can just go crank out a home run first time out. Absolutely. And a lot of that interviewing was at a startup. We talked heavily about startup life. It was almost as if we did some myth-busting in this episode in my mind. I liked what David spoke to in terms of the ability that he found to make an impact on the products and the organization at a startup compared to the way he felt working for a larger organization where it might have felt like his work wasn't as valued to the overall organization or product he was working on. Right. And that's where we touched on signs you you have a miserable job, the idea Mm -hmm. of anonymity and, and lack of importance, lack of impact on what you're doing. The, thing that I really like the detail that we got into was the discussion about risk. I think eventually where we came around to where I suddenly realized, oh, you know, you have to calibrate risk with the business cycle, right? If you are making investments into startup jobs, then you want to do that during boom times when maybe lots of startups are being founded. And if any given startup you're working at doesn't succeed or you start to realize that there's not really a good future there, then there's a good environment to move to a different job. And also has to do with the job skills that you have and and how rare they are. Like both of those things play into your perception of risk in a startup versus an established company. And also the myth that you can't get fired in an established company because things aren't going well. You know, we are in an environment today, we're recording this in October 2022, where some fairly large technology companies are downsizing. Mm -hmm. And it can happen. You know, it's not even uh, tough times out there yet. It's kind of just in anticipation of a potential recession. So it can absolutely happen. Just because you're not at a startup doesn't mean that you can't lose your job because of the business cycle. So sure, something to keep in mind. Last thing I'll say here, John, is that David's point regarding being very interested in people taking a chance on something that didn't work out, but sharing what they learned from that experience with him was something that really stood out to him as an interviewer. Yes. I imagine that that's probably not lost on a lot of interviewers out there hey this person tried this thing but they learned this and they either won't let that happen again or they might do it differently next time 
think it is rolls up to the kind of generic type of question of how do you learn from lack of success? When you try things and they don't work, what is it that you do? Do you just forget about it? Do you do any kind of self-analysis? Do you figure out things about why there was a lack of success or failure? It's something to, to think about because we just don't do everything successfully 100% of the time. Anything else come up before we get out of here? No, sir. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. All right. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, at VJourneyman. For Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore, signing off. Adios. Adios.